what would compel somebody to email me this really private saga of 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 struggle and toil and pain and it was so impactful like i was so touched by that i was really emotional by it and i remember i was like reading these on the, on my phone i was like another one had come in and i start crying and i was like i can't you know i was like this has to mean something like how can how can i take this energy and translate it in a way that can be um, you know of service to other people in some way and also some way of supporting you know us our family like how can i how can i how can i do that like i'm not supposed to be a lawyer clearly you know the universe is telling me that i need to do something else hello i'm john moffett and today on sports life balance we're joined by rich roll ultra marathon athlete and host of the rich roll podcast rich is also known as a best-selling author plant-fueled wellness expert husband and father of four But long before he became known as a worldwide authority in health and wellness, Rich and I were teammates at Stanford. After college, we would drift in and out of each other's lives, but what I didn't realize at the time was that he had lost his way, descending into crippling addiction and self-isolation and big trouble. And it was only after hitting rock bottom and spending 100 days in rehab that he started to see his way out. Out of Rich's recovery rose the podcast, Ultraman Triathlons, and his plant-powered diet. But it was during a week-long endurance odyssey in Hawaii that Rich was pushed beyond his limits and experienced his ultimate intervention. So, Rich, I was reflecting on how I express my appreciation for you becoming part of my podcast, um, and and I the phrase kept coming back to me, which is a blessing. So Rich, it's a blessing to be with you today. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. And I think what's really cool, unique and exciting about this opportunity for me is twofold. One, I get to see you do this thing that I love so much. And secondarily, because we know each other so well, and we have so much shared history, I know I'm going to get an opportunity to share certain things and aspects of my story that I've probably never talked about on a podcast. As somebody who's been a guest on a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. I know we're going to explore some new and interesting terrain. I, I, I hope so, and I hope <laughs> yeah. it's insightful, and I'm sure it will be. I know it will be. I mean, uh, you have, have lived such an um, accomplished and interesting life. Um, you know, so... I mean, the first thing I want to do is I want to explore, let's just call it your origin story. Not that I, I'm treating you like some sort of a superhero out of a comic book or something like that. But I think most people today who are familiar with Rich Roll, they know you as the vegan guru of the wildly popular Rich Roll podcast or best-selling author. Um, you have a new book coming out coming out end of this year. What's it called? Uh, November 10th. Yeah, it's called Voicing Change. Voicing Change, which is sort of chronicling the years that you've spent uh, doing your podcast Mm -hmm. and the guests and really highlighting that anthology. Um, And and then, of course, you as as an ultra-endurance athlete um, who really tested the limits of human potential. Um, But we've been friends for the past 35 years, as as you've alluded to. And, And I've witnessed a lot of the events that you have spoken of and written of in your book, Finding Ultra. 
Um, and I believe to understand anyone, you really need to understand where they come from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm pausing because I get this question a lot and I'm trying to resist the, you know, immediate kind of talking points that come to mind. I want to try to, um, probe a little bit deeper and be, you know, really honest with you. I mean, I think, look, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. We grew up middle class and then upper middle class. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was raised by two parents that are still married. Uh, All my needs were met. Um, And I had a very traditional kind of education first uh, upbringing where achievement was prioritized and and kind of expected and also rewarded. And I felt that pressure, I think, as a young person. Um, But if I could identify, like, the difficulties that I had as a young person, I I really, you know, had a hard time connecting with other people. Like, I was a very quiet, sensitive, almost, you know, kind of uh, withdrawn child with a bit of an artistic sensibility who really struggled to try to find out, to figure out like where I fit because I didn't fit in Mm -hmm. the traditional mold as much as I tried to. And that kind of placed me on the sidelines of a lot of what was going on with, you know, kind of normal kids on the playground in elementary and junior Mm -hmm. high. Um, I was bullied as a kid. You know, I was the kid at the bus stop who had his hat taken all the time, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. I didn't demonstrate any kind of athletic prowess whatsoever, but I did enjoy being in the water, and I grew up around water. You know, my parents are from Michigan, and we would spend summers on Lake Michigan, and I would spend all day, like, in the lake swimming. And I was kind of okay in the pool. I joined my first swim team when I was, like, six, and I wasn't very good. But by the time I was 10, I actually was winning races and setting little summer pool records and stuff like that. It was the one thing in my life that— I not only showed some promise in, but also um, gave me comfort. And I kind of talk about the healing properties of water, like whatever turmoil that I couldn't consciously um, process in my young mind seemed to be ameliorated, like when I was underwater. You know, I felt Mm -hmm. like a, a connection and a peace there. And that just became increasingly more and more uh, of my life as I grew up. And the more I kind of struggled socially in my teens, the more uh, I invested in in the swimming world. And it was a world that you know I gave myself over to, and then that world paid me back and kind yeah. of provided a path for me moving forward. Right. Well, I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially in high school. I know I can relate to going to a high school that I felt constantly marginalized um, and and really never part of the in crowd, definitely outside looking in on so much that was going on. And you went to a super like prestigious high school, uh, Landon. Yeah, the Land the Landon so, School for Boys. Yeah. So, so tell me about those four years that you were there, and and kind of like how you dealt with some of the difficulties that you faced during your high school years. The Landon School for Boys is almost an institution out of time. You know, it's mm. sort of stuck in a certain era 
of what it means to rear young young men into men. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine, you know, the Robin Williams movie, you know, Carpe Diem and all of that. Yeah. There was a little bit of that coat and tie, like the tweed jacket and lacrosse and football and baseball. That's what ruled the mm-hmm. roost at that school, mm-hmm. which were all pursuits that I couldn't connect with and, and certainly, you know, wasn't going to distinguish myself in in any way. Um, it was a small school. There were only 60 kids in my, in, my, uh, in my class. And it was very kind of alpha male oriented. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, I really had a hard time. Mm-hmm. Like that just enhanced my withdrawal from society. You know, I just, I, I, I was not a popular kid. You know, I tried to play basketball. It was a disaster, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I and I was endlessly ridiculed for it. Right. Um, Plenty of I would panic. I would be in these basketball games or in practice, and I would freeze up when I had the ball and get all tense. Oh, and no. then I would like throw the ball to the guy on the other team. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the nickname "Rich Roll Man Under Control." Oh was, like, no! My, my <laughs> in like ninth grade, it was not good. Oh um, gee! But that's when I started to uh, you know kind of shift my focus away from even attempting to have a social life in my high school mm-hmm. and. And just placed it into uh, trying to distinguish myself in swimming. You you t- you, you use the term retreat um, that you would basically pull into your own shell. But there's um, like in swimming, and obviously you also um, retreated to your academics because you did very well academically. But one of the reasons that people retreat is because it, they find their bliss in there someplace. Mm. Um, was it only a refuge from the outside world that wasn't that you couldn't make sense of at that point in high school, or was it also finding that spot that made you f- start figuring out who Rich Roll is? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I think one way to look at it is, you know, my life at Landon. Um, was like a complex algorithm that I couldn't solve. Mm-hmm. But when I went to the pool, it was like a very binary elementary math equation that I could solve. It made sense to me. Right. And part of that was informed by the fact that when I joined like my first club team, it was called Solitar, and then it became the Curl Swim Club, and right. I was under the mentorship of a guy called Rick Curl. There's a whole other saga with that. Um, but he became my coach when I was about 15 years old. And when I joined that team, I was a kid who who was okay in the kind of summer pool circuit. Um, but suddenly I was thrown in with a group of national age group record holders, guys like um, guys like uh, uh, Tony Barnett, who had mm-hmm. set like every NAG record in his age. You know, yeah. they were like, we were young kids, but these these people had already made an imprint on the national stage, and I certainly was not of that caliber. I was very much playing catch-up. But what I learned early and often was that I could bridge that talent deficit gap by outworking everybody else. Yeah. And I developed a lot of self-esteem through that pursuit. So within a period of about two years, I went from somebody who was chasing the heels of everybody in my lane to leading sets um, and ultimately, you know, becoming, uh, you know, a, a, a top 16 ranked swimmer in my own right. Um, so not only did that, you know, provide me with a sense of pride that I could accomplish something, it was binary, like I said, like put in the work, achieve. And I was a kid who originally really struggled academically. 
And that's why my parents pulled me out of public school and tried mm -hmm. to find uh, you know, a place where I could mature a little bit more effectively. But I think the work ethic that I developed in the pool, I was able to transfer that onto academics. And I went from you know, a kid who was near the bottom of the class to somebody who was close to the very top of the class by the time I graduated high school. Well, so your confidence must have built. I mean, look, the, the, the process of stepping up stepping up in doing something that scares you, something that you're not sure you're able to mm -hmm. do. That's that's how you get your confidence, right? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. But I think, you know, as somebody who's also a recovering alcoholic, I can reflect back on the intensity of my attachment to the sport as one that had hints of being unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Like, it really mm -hmm. was my first drug of choice. I was using it as much... Mm -hmm to advance my life as I was using it to hide from complicated emotions and things that, you know, I, I couldn't quite process. But clearly the equation that you, the binary equation that you had set up for yourself was working, as you said. Um, you, uh, you, you were well um, recruited mm. as, a, as a swimmer. In fact, uh, to a large degree by Ivy Leagues, and you really set your, set your sights on a place with the color of crimson, Harvard, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, by the time I was a junior in high school, I, I, I was one of the you know, fastest butterflyers in the region and started to get the attention of some of the, the, the college coaches, and I started going on recruiting trips. And yeah. I really thought, this is my ticket to the Ivy League. You know, it's going to be Princeton or Harvard. Right. And I got into Harvard, which I just couldn't believe happened. You know, mm -hmm. uh, who gets to get into Harvard? I mean, what an incredible gift. Yeah. And I told Coach Bernal, who was the coach there at the time, like, I'm, if I get in, I'm going. And I was fully intending to, you know, make that dream a reality. And the world started to unfold in my favor in that regard. Right, right. But, but, the, but the first inkling of your issues when it comes to alcohol and control happened during your recruiting trip at Harvard. Yeah, there were, there were a couple interesting recruiting trips that I had. Probably yeah. the first one was Michigan. Did I tell you this story? I don't know this story, no. So I go to the University of Michigan on a recruiting trip. My whole family's from Michigan. Yeah. We, you know, we, we, we bleed, you know, maize and blue. My parents <laughs> went to, you know, like my whole extended family went to Michigan. Um, I didn't think that I was gonna go to Michigan because I really wanted to go to the Ivy League, but mm -hmm. I was like, I gotta go check this out. Um, I fell in love with Coach John Urbanchek there, who was who was pretty new there at the time, but who was building an amazing program. Uh, to this day, my very favorite swim coach. And I often reflect back on my career and wonder what I would have accomplished as a swimmer had I been under his tutelage. Um, but as part of that recruiting trip, I got taken to a bunch of parties. Mm -hmm. And I was somebody who, in high school, I'm going to bed 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, getting up at 4.45, going to morning swim practice, going to school. I was the only kid at my high school who had an exemption from their revered sports program to go swim. So I would leave my high school campus and go back to the pool and swim two more hours. Then I would go home, do my homework, and crash. There wasn't enough time, let alone energy, to get into trouble or to mm -hmm. go to parties or mm -hmm. to do any of the stuff that my peers were doing. But when I went on these recruiting trips... I would go to these dual meets and then there'd be the party after the dual meet and suddenly there's a keg and I'm getting to drink with these guys that I've read about in Swimming World magazine. Right. I remember when I went to Michigan, not only did I go to a swimmer party um, after a dual meet, then one of the swimmers took me to a house party 
and introduced me to Jim Harbaugh, who was like the quarterback <laughs> at the time. <laughs> right, right. And we're like drinking beers. And I just thought yeah. this was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> um, but I had that unmistakable feeling that you'll hear with recovering alcoholics of what it feels like to feel drunk for the first time. And the only way I can describe it is as if you've suddenly been delivered the rule book that has eluded you your whole life. Like everybody seems to know what they're doing with life and I don't. And now it makes sense. Or like a warm blanket, like enveloping you and telling you everything is going to be okay now. And at that swimmer party at Michigan, I get introduced to a diver named Bruce Kimball. Yeah, right. And Bruce Kimball hands me a beer and like a big gulp thing. And I'm like, this guy is an Olympic hero. Yeah. You know, like who's not going to drink a beer that's handed to you by Bruce Kimball. And then he proceeded to do the greatest party trick I've ever seen in my life. Have I told you this story before? Uh, yeah, now I, now, <laughs> yeah. I, now I recall yeah. it. Yeah. He's holding a keg, you know, a, a keg beer in a little glass. And he, from, from flat-footed, leaps into the air and does a standing backflip and lands perfectly. And the kicker is he didn't spill one drop of his beer. And I just thought... That's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's a professional Whatever that drinker. guy has, that's what I want to have. Wow. Now, little did anybody know that, you know, he would descend into darkness. Like he, mm-hmm. um, a couple of years later, would plow his car drunk into a crowd of people. And I think he, he killed somebody and went to jail. He, I think he yeah. killed more than one. It was and, more and than it one was person. Yeah. I remember clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So this recruiting trip was... 1984, 85 at the time. So it was a couple of years before that. Um, But the point being that that was my introduction to alcohol. You know, I went to Harvard. I got taken to all these parties. I just got hammered. I remember having to go meet Coach Burnell after I'd been out drinking. Who doesn't suffer fools. Guys like all day, (laughs) you know? And I'm like, I'm drunk having this conversation with this coach who's going to make a decision between whether I'm going to get to be part of this team or not. And I'm blowing it, you know? So... From the very outset, on some semi-conscious, semi-unconscious level, I understood that my reaction and relationship with alcohol was fundamentally unhealthy. Like, I knew that from the beginning. Wow. But I also loved it, and it was giving me something that I lacked in my life. And I think that gets missed in the conversation around alcoholism and people that are alcoholics. Like, it works until it stops working, but it Mm -hmm. does work for a while. Mm -hmm. And it really helped me um, become a social animal. It gave me the ability to navigate social circles in a way that I lacked prior to that. Well, because the socially awkward rich role that you described completely completely belies the rich role that I knew Mm -hmm. your freshman year, Mm -hmm. that I got to know your freshman year. Uh, back back to uh, back to Harvard then, but you got accepted to Harvard, and that was your dream school. Yeah, right. Well, you didn't go to Harvard. No. What was what was it about Stanford that tempted you away from from Harvard, the arguably the most prestigious university, perhaps in the world, certainly in the United States. Yeah. So I return home from that Harvard trip. I get the. Uh, acceptance to Harvard, which by the way, when you get into Harvard, they send you this thing that looks like a diploma oh, with your name, like calligraphied in it. So You're it's like, me. who am I to say no to this? Like, yeah, this is unbelievable. Yeah. Right. But then my 
my my gaze would would veer towards that stack of Swing World magazines on my bedside table and that picture on the cover of the Stanford swimming team that had just won the NC2A championships. And there was like this mystical, magical, romantic allure to this institution under the sunny skies of California. Yeah. That it was far away for you. It was very, then. yeah, it was like, it was like Oz, you know, it's like, <laughs> awesome. what is this place, <laughs> right. you know, where these people do this thing? Yeah. And I just thought, you know what? I need to, I need to uh, really see what this is about. Now, I was not being recruited by Stanford. Stanford showed no interest in me attending. But I just picked up the phone book or I figured out I called information or whatever and Mm -hmm. I got the phone number for the Stanford swimming coach's office or whatever it is, the number for the pool. And I just cold called. And Ted Knapp picked up the phone, who was the assistant coach at the time, brand new assistant coach. And I just explained to him who I was. And I said, I really, you know, I'd really, I really want to, you know, I don't know if, you know, who I am interests you at all, but I kind of wanted to check it off the list. Like if he was to say, yeah, you're not our caliber, I would have happily gone on my way and gone to Harvard. But I needed to hear him say no first. And he didn't say no. What he said was, hey, man, like, this is cool. Why don't you come out and visit? That was it. So I booked my own flight and I flew out and my it wasn't a recruiting trip because yeah. I, you know, I don't nobody, remember it yeah. at all. Well, I showed up during spring break, so basically no one was around. Were we at um, you? I don't think I met you, but Kostoff no, no. was around, and he okay. he he took me around, and Lundberg was around. Okay, I think I went to nationals during spring. Yeah, break. I think yeah. There were, yeah, like most people were gone. I think I saw Pablo on the deck, but Kostoff was really the one who kind of escorted me about. Mm-hmm. There were no parties going on. I didn't right. party at all, but I will never forget. The experience of driving down Palm Drive that first time, and 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 literally every fantasy that I had about what Stanford might be was exceeded by that overload of sensations. That I just was like, I can't believe this place is real. And then I was welcomed by Ted and by Jeff Kostoff, who I revered and had read right. about so many times. And suddenly I was being introduced to these people who were literally my heroes, and they were like, Hey, why don't you come and swim here? Well, there's an equation, and I'm I'm sure you realize that after you're there, there's an equation of the Stanford swim team where walk-ons could play a, a, a mm-hmm. elemental and pivotal role on the team. In fact, probably like the most instrumental walk-on ever was Sam uh, McAdam. Sam McAdam, yeah. Yeah. And and he just proved, you know, I I, I think he maybe he made NC2A's his senior year. Right. Remember, remember how happy but, everyone was when yeah, he made it? Yeah. But but he, you know, he, he moved, that guy moved the needle and he basically didn't score a point a leader um, and and so ted and skip and all of us were very aware that your your caliber as a swimmer in the pool does not necessarily have anything to do with how much you're able to contribute to the team first thing i really kind of remember about you is that there was a legend around you that you were the you were the guy who on your application to Stanford, sent in a picture of the back of your head. You know, back then the applications, you didn't, you didn't submit them electronically. Uh, you actually like typed them out and right. stapled a, a, a headshot of yourself so that they could personalize, you know, you, the, your application. I mean, 
that took some hubris to uh, to do that. But it was, on the other hand, it was very much within the zeitgeist of Stanford, which loves pranks. Right. Yeah, I don't think of it as hubris. I thought of it as as my, like I needed to find a way to distinguish myself. It's so mm. funny that I haven't thought about that in so long. But unlike the Ivy Leagues and the other schools that were recruiting me, Stanford was not. And I was like, I need to do everything I can to try to get in here. How can I um, stand out amongst you know, uh, a collection of extraordinary individuals who are vying for a very few number of spots. Right. So yeah, I had the idea of, it's, it's so funny, like in 2020, thinking back on that, like, is, was that a woke thing to do? Or was that like, <laughs> how would that be perceived now? I'm not sure. Well, you got um, in. I did get in. And yeah. I, I, not only did I, I, I attach a picture of the back of my head, my essay was this very, you have to you know, do an application essay, right, right. and it's kind of open-ended, and mm-hmm. I just I decided to write this very esoteric um, piece about the emotional experience of being underwater, which was very strange, but also very telling in that although I was unaware of the kind of healing properties of being submerged were having on my kind of discontent, um, it still rings true. I should pull that essay up and read it today. Yeah, yeah. But I was really proud of that. And I also attached to that essay like a underwater photo of my face, like all blurry. Okay. In case they, you know, just to make sure they didn't know I was, you know, I don't know, disfigured but, but, or something like that. But it was that, that thing that, that we talked about a little bit earlier, that that Zen, that peaceful place, that meditative spot sure. that you found. That and that's what that's what the essay was about? Yes. Yeah. Um you you speak of a pivotal moment in your life when uh, you and me and there's a number of other people. There are a lot of people at this football game, uh-huh. and it was a night game. It was in October, I believe, wasn't it? Yes. And you had something happen to you that made quite an impact on you. Yes, uh, I'll preface this story by saying that when I arrived at Stanford. I was very aware that I was being given an extraordinary opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it was an opportunity that I was very intent on making the most of. Um, I realized that, uh, you know, I could, I was given this this moment where I could be on this team, but I was going to have to work for it and mm-hmm. I was going to have to earn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, I set about like training before swim training even started, like Dave Bottom and I would meet and run stadium steps and he would take me to the weight room and I just wanted to be as fit as possible. Right. Uh, you know, by the time everyone else showed up, I was there a little bit early. Um, that work ethic mentality, like I was there to make it work. Right. I didn't want to just be the last guy on the roster. Um, but I also was enjoying the fact that I was 3000 miles from home Mm. and suddenly Mm. that kind of umbrella under which I was existing for a long time, like that bubble had popped, right? Well, now I could do whatever I wanted. Right. It was and, liberating. Yeah, it was and incredibly liberating. Yeah. And so, you know, I was at every party and I was having a wow. good time and I was having fun and I was loving connecting with all these other swimmers and feeling like I was not only part of something special, mm-hmm. um, but also part of something special that was kind of honored and respected at Stanford. Mm-hmm. You know, like to be on the swim team at Stanford was no small thing. Uh, so fast forward to this football game, uh, just to place this in time and context, this was <laughs> this was an era in which you could literally 
bring as much alcohol as you wanted into the Stanford Stadium for a football game. People were wheeling kegs in. Yeah. I went to every football game, uh, and I I couldn't tell you one down that happened because I wasn't there to watch the football game. Right, I was right. there to party and have a good time, right. which is exactly what we were doing on this evening. As the game ended, I had a pretty heavy buzz on. And I don't know how it happened. It's all very murky and foggy, and maybe mm-hmm. you recall. But at some point, I hook up with you and John Hodge, and yeah, we're running yeah. around. Like Maybe we went out to a tailgate and then went back into the stadium. I don't remember, but the stadium was clearing out, and the game was over. I think the game was over, yeah. And we were kind of running running the stadium steps, but we were, cr- we were crossing horizontally. Yeah. Like, and I think we were exiting the game, actually. Yeah, we were getting ready to leave and go to some other party or mm-hmm. whatever. And it was misty out. And the stadium is a mix of hardwood bleachers and then these aluminum bleachers kind of peppered throughout. Yeah. And we were leaping, you know, across the aisles from one to Well, the and next. it's incredibly steep. It's, it's very steep. <laughs> anyway, my foot slipped and uh, I was falling forward and landed on one of those aluminum uh, bleacher corners right in Ugh. my rib and cracked a rib. Um, but the next day I woke up and realized something was very wrong. Yeah. And this was right on the precipice of of the very first dual meet of the season. My against very Texas. first dual meet ever against Texas, who yeah. was our biggest competitor at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I had I had been at the farm for all of, I don't know, a couple weeks, a yeah. month maybe month? at this point. Yeah, we hadn't even weeks. had a meet yet. And I think I'd we were already, just barely getting started with training. Right. We're but just kind of winding it up. It was it was the first like very tactile, tangible indication that, you know, perhaps alcohol and me don't mix so mm-hmm. well because I was going I was I was about to suffer, you know, my first real consequence. Right, right. And and I, I, I remember the spill, uh, but I, I I it was like the next Monday, I think, that I that you said, listen, I really hurt my ribs. So yeah, so first of all I had to go tell Skip. So you know that that I that I'd done this thing, yeah, which is not fun. really what I wanted yeah. to do. Especially like you know, I'm here trying to create a good impression, and here I am like just going sideways already. He was not happy, but you know, I just dialed back the workouts. I couldn't even do a butterfly stroke for wow. a couple of days, and just took it easy. And still, Skip allowed me to um, to compete in the 200 butterfly. Mm-hmm. Pablo at the time was doing water polo, so he was not oh, competing. Right, right. But Anthony Moss, who was number two in the world in the 200 butterfly, was competing along with Billy Stapleton from Texas, who also was—I don't know if he'd won NC2As or was he was you know he was pretty high up. Yeah, there. yeah, he was up there. He um, made the he made the 88 Olympic team. Right. Yeah, he made the 88, and and people know him because he ended up becoming Lance Armstrong's agent, right. longtime agent. Um, in any event, uh, injured and all. I compete in this race and was able to eke out. Did I get second to Anthony? I think I did. I think yeah, you did. I think, I, I, think mm-hmm. I got second to Anthony. I was leading the race at one point. Um, so even though I didn't win that race, it was a huge victory for me because right. I was the walk-on guy. And right. everybody was able to see that I had something going on. Like, oh, my God, we're only in October. And this guy's already like leading Anthony out for, you know, 175 meters of this 200 butterfly. That was a very big moment and and one that um you know, I had worked for. You, you know, we were talking about luck in my podcast earlier, but it was like luck meets preparation. Like mm-hmm. I went into that, you know, had that accident not happened, who who knows what would have happened? Maybe I wouldn't have done any better, but 
But you know, that was the impression that I was trying to make. And that was, a, that was pivotal because after that, Skip was like, um, he called me and Hodge into his office mm-hmm. and he's like, you guys are the leaders of this class. I want you to understand that someday, you know, you'll probably be the captains. That was like massive for yeah. me. I, I just couldn't even believe it. So the brakes were going in my direction. Um, but, uh, Ultimately, that was probably the highlight of my entire swimming career, mm. that first dual meet. Yikes. I mean, I would swim faster at the end of that year, but then after my freshman year, I really never swam fast again. So what what do you think it was? How did you lose that important, uh, that important immersion that you had thrived upon in high school? I think it speaks to the cunning, baffling, powerful, and pernicious power of alcohol to derail the alcoholic. And it's mm. something that happens imperceptibly at first and gradually over time. Right. But in my case, it was a slow progression of just losing interest in things that were aspirational and just being more interested in finding the next good time. Wow. And that just slowly became more and more of a priority. And it's not that I stopped going to work out, it's just that I would go to whatever party on a Tuesday night and still go to workout at six or six thirty right. or whatever it was, you know, hungover, which is what you do when you're eighteen or nineteen years old, and you, you get away with it. Yeah, yeah, but you, slow over time, you aggregate that, and it's going to under undercut, you know, your ability to show up. Oh, there's there's so, just no way that's sustainable yeah. in in any way. You can do it once or twice a season, but that's right. that's about it. Yeah. You develop a weird pride around it, where you're like. You, this kind of like egoic Superman complex of like, I can stay out super late and I can show up at workout and still do fine and, you know, get good grades yeah. and all of that. And it, and, and I definitely had that mindset and that really just ushered me out the door. Mm. Well, we spent our, your freshman year, my senior year, we, we went on to win that NC2A championship, mm-hmm. but you know, the times we spent together were definitely much more tangential as far as your, sophomore junior and senior years in fact I, I would I would say probably your junior senior year I, I don't think I even had any contact whatsoever mm-hmm. but I remember very clearly the summer of 1989 when I was living with um, two of our teammates in New York City yeah. and you were living with one of our teammates in New York City um, we had a good time it was super fun. It was so fun. I think you said that it's like Disneyland for alcoholics. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I had to get out of there. I could only take so much. <laughs> but man, I remember having a great time with you. I mean, There's plenty of times where I mi- I miss it. There was a there was an innocence to it, too. Well, there's just a there, there yes, there, I, innocence is a good way to put it. There's just a um a, fr- a freedom of of expressing your happiness. But somebody you like being around, and you haven't spent much time with them, yeah, and you really enjoy. I remember we we lost one of your shoes on the subway. I, know. I don't. I, I all I remember is it got sucked down. You know, mind the gap. You know, your shoe right. got stuck in the gap. But and then it, we just went about our way. That well, was we just did, a, but before a, we did, a mild interference in but, the evening. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We did. We did. <laughs> That that that's true. I thought you meant in yeah. in general, but the the thing that truly sticks out in my mind of of that summer was uh, one of our teammates was uh, getting married in in DC. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you did it, but you somehow got 
a rickety old cargo van that had seen better days. And we drove that cargo van down to D.C. from New York to D.C. And it was a stiflingly hot summer to begin with. And this was just a brutally hot day. And the engine compartment, which basically sat in between the driver and the passenger seats, that big bump you have in, in vans, had a giant hole in it. So I could actually look down. You could see the churning engine. <laughs> and so the heat would just, it was a blast furnace. Uh-huh. I, I don't know whose idea it was, but one of us or both of us, both of us clearly thought it was a good idea to see how hot we could get. In this super janked out van, I think it was your idea. What happened was... Uh, well, there was One no of, AC in the first yeah, there's place. Yeah, no, it was so blisteringly hot in that so humid, sticky East Coast kind of way, like one of the hottest days of the year. So rather than try to cool ourselves down, I think it was your idea. I don't remember, but it were like, instead, let's just see how hot we can get. So not only we roll up the windows in the van, we turned the heat on. Or maybe yeah. we initially did it to take heat off the engine so the van didn't overheat. I don't remember. We're like, let's just let's just go all in on this. We went all in. <laughs> and see how long, like play a game of chicken, how long we can handle it. We've gotten it. like 150 We're degrees driving on the turnpike and we're just, the sweat is just bleeding yes. down and we're laughing yes. hysterically. All I remember, the most vivid part that I remember is pulling up to the toll booth. <laughs> and, you're, and the woman behind the toll booth is like, you know, looking for the money. And you, you, you were driving, I think, and you rolled down the window like one inch and like gave her the, the bill or well, whatever. Well, I didn't want to let Rolled the heat out. <laughs> not let the heat out. <laughs> to this day, I can't remember a time where I laughed as hard as I laughed on that day. Oh, I will I, always remember that experience. I, I remember it was absolute hilarity for whatever reason. We didn't stop laughing for the longest time. And that was probably the quickest trip to, from New York to DC we could yeah. have had because it's, we spent most of the time laughing. But hindsight being 2020 and, and, and looking back upon that, you know, the things that um, stick out to me is seeking out extreme situations. And that, and, and perhaps it's just being swimmers mm-hmm. and, and having to deny yourself of comfort so much of your life with the training that, that we kind of just were conditioned to seeking out an extreme situation, an extremely uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Well, the swimming ethos was always kind of a work hard, play hard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there is a little bit of that egoic pride that gets built into that, I think. But then when the swimming's over, there's still that, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself, like that that drive to, you know, push the envelope in yeah. whatever regard. And when I was in New York, I had a you know, I had a really boring job as a paralegal at a law firm. Right. And I couldn't stand it. I can't believe I stayed there as long as I did. But I had to counterbalance that with something, yeah. right? So that took the form of just, you know, partying as hard as I could on no money, basically. Like becoming a detective for where the free beer was or wow. the happy hours or, you know, how drunk can we get on, you know, $5 became mm. like the quest, and there was an innocence to it because, there, you know, I, it wasn't all dark. Like, we had a lot of fun. Like, I had a lot of really right. great times and made some really good friendships and had a blast. Yeah. Um, but part of that probably informs, you know, the unhealthy relationship that ultimately develops out of that because you're always chasing that later. 
trying to right. repeat that as people start to get older and get more responsible. And you're like, come on, let's do that. Yeah, thing yeah, that yeah. We I want to re- replicate you know? that. Yeah. I get it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's the way. That's the alcoholic brain. You're like. You're, you're remembering that yeah, moment. I'm remembering, trying, yeah, I'm trying like, to I live that I want to replicate life. that today because right. I'm not very happy with where I am right now. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. You know, the other thing that I remember, and I don't know if we've ever spoke of this, but I and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I clearly remember you and I speaking of you going to L.A. and going to film school. Or, yes. Or applying to film. Mm-hmm. Like, and the thing that I remember so clearly is that I was back in L.A., you know, we went our separate ways and I hadn't heard from you. And I believe the plans were that you were going to come to LA and I, but I remember calling your parents' house and saying, Hey, I'm trying to find rich. And I think it was your mother. Your mother said, well, rich is at law school. Uh-huh. I'm like, law school. I don't think you said one word to me about going to law school. Uh-huh. <laughs> I really don't think you did. I mean, yeah. what, 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 what is your recollection of that chapter? So one of the really cool things about New York City, you'll just stumble upon a massive film set where they're Mm -hmm. shooting a TV show or Mm -hmm. a movie. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And I was instantly like fascinated by that. Like I would stop on the sidewalk and stand there for like an hour and just look at everything that was going on, trying to understand and figure out who was doing what and why. Right. And I can remember being with friends who would just be bored immediately and be like, come on, man, we're going over here. And I'm like, no, man, I got to, like, what is happening here? Like, it was magical and mysterious and amazing to me. That was my first introduction to, like, basically filmmaking at all. But I just thought it was, there was something about it that I was really attracted to. Um, And I knew that you were super into that as well. So we would talk about that kind of stuff when you were in New York. And after kind of a year and a half or so of being a paralegal in this law firm, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do next. I had applied to a bunch of law schools, but I really wasn't that interested in going Mm -hmm. to law, like into into the law. Like I was just doing it because it felt like this is what you do or this is what Mm -hmm. you do after being a paralegal in a law firm, the right thing to do. The kind of thing that would be expected of someone like myself who had grown up the way that I had grown up. It wasn't driven by a passion for, you know, being an attorney. It just seemed like the socially acceptable thing to do. And at the time in the early 90s was a thing that a lot of people did who really weren't clear on what it is exactly that they yeah. wanted to do, yeah. right? Um, so I'd applied to all these law schools. I got rejected by almost all of them, um, but I was still on the wait list at a couple but I'd kind of written it off. I just didn't think anything was going to come of that. Mm-hmm. And my focus was not on that. And I got a job as a, as a, um, as a, uh, a PA on a low-budget movie in New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was called Rain Without Thunder, super low-budget yeah, movie. Yeah. Um, but I loved it. It was so much fun. Right. And part of my job was to drive some of the talent to, mm-hmm. and, f- to and from set. Uh, and so I got to drive Jeff Daniels to set and like Linda Hunt. Wow. And I remember it was it was like one of Steve Zahn's first movies. He was like a kid, mm-hmm. you know, like and just being present, we were shooting on stages that they kind of built makeshift out on those Chelsea Piers. I don't know if you remember like yeah, those I do. Chelsea I remember. Piers, like sure. that's where they shot Law and Order. And I yeah. would find like Polaroids from Law and Order shoots that wardrobe had just left, like, you know, detritus from 
shoots of of you know of of the of your right and everything about it was just amazing. even though i was just getting coffee and doing menial work like it was really fun and right. i just thought this is the path like i want to i want to be more involved in this world mm-hmm. um, and so my intention was either to do more of that in new york like i remember like talking to the dp on that movie and he's like hey i got this other shoot like or do you want to learn camera like why don't you come and i'll i'll help you maybe you could be in ac like i was already kind of making plans yeah that's what i remember deep in my relationship to that and i also at the same time did a summer intensive filmmaking program at NYU. Oh, that's what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which was really fun as well. I forgot. I totally forgot that I did that. Yeah. So that's where my head was at. And then um, I got a call from my parents. I was like couch surfing at this point. I don't even think I had an apartment. They couldn't find me. I was up in Albany on on a shoot for this movie, and mm-hmm. they didn't know where I was. And my buddy Chris Hildenbrand finally got a hold of me like that night. And he's like, your parents have been calling me all day. They, they, they don't know where you are. They're trying to find you. You better call them. So I called my dad and he's like, listen, uh, you're, you got into Cornell Law School. You're the last one off the waiting list and you can go if you want. But the catch is you literally have like an hour to decide whether you wow. want to go or not. Wow. And it was one of those moments, John, where I think fear and also a sense that I was very ungrounded in my life um, because I was drinking a lot. And what I was interested in was cool, but it was also very precarious and I was not in a good emotional state. There was a self-preservation aspect inside of me that was like, you know, I should probably go to law school. I should probably get out of New York City. And I said, okay. And that night I was on a train down to DC and I went to my parents' house and packed up the Volvo and got a map out and figured out where Ithaca, New York was because I didn't know where it was, showed up without an apartment and class began that next day. And I remember sitting in this like class, like constitutional law class. And I had this like, uh, like surreal moment of like, what am I doing here? Like mm. literally two days ago, I was, I was a PA on this movie. Well, and, and I, now I'm, in, yeah. now I'm sitting in a lock. And everybody around me had been spending their entire summer getting ready for law school and doing all this summer reading and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, okay, well, here I am. And I reflect back on that decision often thinking what would have happened had I either not gotten in or said, or said no. And my life would probably be very different. Maybe I wouldn't be alive or maybe I would have gone to LA and gotten some apprentice job, you know, underneath you working in television, who knows, Mm -hmm. but it definitely would have been very different. And, you know, I ended up being a lawyer for many years and that was a process of jamming a square peg into a round hole. And it's a whole conversation about, um, not living your authentic self, which is something I talk about a lot, you know, in, in what I do now. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned, uh, in your book that, um, you know, the years at, at Cornell, it was, you, you you partied a lot, yeah. Partied a lot, and um, it yeah. kind of culminated in the graduation. And I guess you might call a misstep when it came to actually graduating, and and as far as in the eyes of your father goes. Yeah, you know, there's a thing with alcoholics called a geographic. Mm. This delusion that you have that if you change where you live, if you pick up and move, that you can start over fresh. Mm -hmm. Um, And what gets lost in that, of course, is that you bring yourself with you. So I really thought that getting out of New York City, going to Ithaca, being in a structured environment would 
you know, help me with the excessive drinking and the partying. Um, but that's not what happened. I was able to keep it together. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a functional alcoholic because there was a lot of dysfunction in it. But I could keep it together enough to mm-hmm. get my schoolwork done mm-hmm. and show up, you know, to the classes I needed to go to. But it just wasn't that important or all that interesting wow. to me. And so, yeah, the 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 alcoholism escalated, and with that comes an escalation in the drama and the kind of mishaps that you can write off when you're young, um, but they become harder and harder to dismiss, and they they start to take their toll psychologically on yeah. you. And with respect to the graduation thing. Yeah, I just, you know, I woke up in the morning and started drinking and was drinking all day. And by the time graduation rolled around, I was, you know, pretty much in the bag. And my parents were there, and this was a big moment for them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't care. I was just there to have fun and have a good time. And I thought it would be cheeky and cool to, like, go up and receive my diploma barefoot, which Mm -hmm. in looking back on it really isn't that big of a deal. You know what I mean? And being somebody who's lived in California for a long time is like, hey, man, what's, you know, it's— who cares? Yeah. I can tell you it was a huge deal, and it was very um, ill-received by my parents, yeah. who are very traditional. I mean, my dad is a guy who wakes up on Sunday morning and puts a tie on. You know, He wears a seersucker suit in the right. summer. He's, he's a inside-the-beltway D.C. lawyer. He is a gentleman's gentleman. Mm-hmm. He's a beautiful guy. But the look of disappointment on his face is something that— uh, traumatized me so, so, so deeply. And I didn't understand that graduations really aren't for the graduate. Oh, right. They're for, you know, the people that supported you to, to you know, um, enjoy that achievement. And it's selfishness. Well, you got, you got through law school, and, and you ended up uh, landing a job in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a job at a law firm in San Francisco, and had an office with an incredible view of Alcatraz, and I figured, I've made it. Yeah. I did it. I'm on this trajectory of um, social respectability and economic stability, everything that would be expected of someone like myself. And I just found myself profoundly unfulfilled and unhappy in that role, which created a lot of guilt for myself because Mm -hmm. I thought— well, this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is this is the promise of that had this is what had been promised to me my whole life. Like, if you do these things, then you will be a fulfilled, purposeful, contented individual. Mm-hmm. And I was not having that experience. I wasn't mature enough to really parse that um, emotionally. But in retrospect, it was clearly a function of 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 never really confronting myself in an honest way to figure out who I am or what I want or what it is that's important to me to express. I was living this traditional trajectory um, not because I had any emotional, personal connection to it, but just because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. I never once stopped and asked myself, is this really what I want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, what makes me happy? Those questions didn't feel, I didn't feel entitled to ask myself those questions. But I have this work ethic and I know how to suffer and all these things that I learned from swimming. And so I just thought everybody was probably feeling the same way that I did, but they just show up anyway. Right. (laughs) I didn't realize, oh, some of these people actually like it. Like I just thought, 
maybe they know how to suffer better than I do, but nobody knows how to suffer better than I do. Yeah, right, right. So I would just gut it out and I could get by and, you know, I'm smart enough to be able to do the work, but I just couldn't wait until I just, I, I basically did the least amount of work that I possibly could without getting fired Mm. And just thought about what am I going to do when I can leave this place and go out at night. And mm. this is where the drinking got really dark. Like this is when everybody, like my peers, everybody's, you know, well into their careers and, you know, trying to build their lives. And it wasn't like when we were in New York City and we were carefree and running around. Yeah. And I still wanted to have that, but there was no one to do it with. Mm. So I started drinking alone mm. by myself. Um you know, meanwhile, still able to kind of keep it together when I needed to. But, you know, my life was really, you know, it wasn't bottoming out, but it wasn't advancing. Well, our history of the three plus decades together as friends, um, I can tell you that you would drift in and out of my Mm -hmm. life. And this was one of those periods, a majority of your time at Cornell, aside from one time I visited Cornell and you were there. Um, that you were you had drifted out of my life, but you contacted me about about whether or not I could get your resume into mm-hmm. some place within the entertainment business, and so uh, fate seemed to intervene in a strange way. It's and, it's such a crazy story. Sorry, yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, that's that's cool because what sort of pivotal role does it have in your life? Mm, very pivotal. It's so interesting that kind of behind the scenes, you were you were like this player moving the tectonic plates on my life without even being consciously aware <laughs> of the impact that you would ultimately have on decisions I would make. Um, with that lack of fulfillment in my career path, like I would think back on how fun it was working on that movie set and... Um, how how gratifying that film school experience was that I did that summer at NYU and thinking, how come I didn't have the courage to pursue that? Like I, I kind of was already moving in that direction mm. and I just let it all go. So I thought in a very um, artist shadow kind of way, like what if I could become, uh, what if I could take this law experience that I have and merge it with this other interest in film and entertainment yeah. because I have a skill set now. So I thought, well, who's not going to want to hire me? Like my ego, you know? So I start firing off resumes to all these entertainment right. law firms, um, none of which were interested in hiring me because I had zero experience in doing the thing that they do. Um, but I had given you my resume and yeah. just said, you know, if you know anyone who's interested down in LA, like I'm looking to make a move here. Um, you had passed that on to our mutual, who would soon be, be our mutual friend, Adam Bram. And unbeknownst to me, he slipped it to a law firm called, it was then called, Christensen White, and then became Christensen Miller. And I got a phone call from this law firm saying, hey, we got your resume. We want to interview you. I didn't know that you had given my resume to Adam and that Adam had given it to this firm. So I just thought, why is this firm calling me out of the blue? I never sent them a resume. But this firm um, was very interesting and had its hands in the middle of a lot of interesting deal flow in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and litigation. And like Robert Shapiro, the OJ lawyer, right. worked there. And there was like a mystique, like, wow, this is a very L.A. thing. And there was a, there was something compelling about that mm-hmm. to me. So I said, yeah, I want to interview. And um, booked in, you know booked a flight down to L.A. just for the day to do this interview. And I get on the plane, and <laughs> you were on the plane yeah. sitting right next to me. 
It was weird. And we it didn't was... find out until much later that the only reason I was on that plane was because of you anyway. And there is a bizarre, yeah. mystical, spiritual force at play because Clearly. that is beyond anything that you could ever script as a storyteller. It was, yes. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly strange how that all played out. Um, and the fact that we sat next to each other on the way yeah. down there. I knew you were interviewing, but I, it was never two and two were put together. Was, and I got the job, and I took the job, and that's why I moved to Los Angeles. And you ended up in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your time here in L.A. So other than you, I didn't really know anyone right. in L.A., uh, it's so funny. Like I, I was like, where, where do you live when you live in, it's so big, you know what I mean? Like, where do people like, where's the place? So I moved to Westwood village cause I uh-huh. thought that was like where you should go, you know, probably cause I still thought I was a college student. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, started working at this firm in the Nakatomi Plaza diehard building. Uh-huh. And as I write in my book, like this was, um, you know, kind of things that were going on in this law firm were, the stuff of, you know, what Dominic Dunn would write in Vanity Fair. Yeah. Like like Terry Christensen was representing um, Kirk Kerkorian and was hiring Anthony Pelicano to do a bunch of dirty work. And there was Robert Shapiro, who I ended up second chairing a trial with. It didn't go to trial, but a case. Yeah. Um, we were representing like this nightclub owner and a sexual harassment. It was like, there was a lot of sordid, weird, yeah. only in LA kind of stuff that was going on there. And I remember one evening working late, sitting in a conference room with Robert Shapiro and we were watching, it was it was during the OJ civil trial, which mm-hmm. was years after mm-hmm. the criminal, like the, the car chase and all of that. Yeah. And there were helicopter shots over the Rockingham house and all kinds of craziness was going on. And I'm sitting next to the guy who represented him. And he's like, oh, that's so-and-so. And he's like giving this kind of behind the scenes, right. like, right. you know, DVD narration of what was happening. And I was like, this is crazy. It's intoxicating yeah, getting a seat at the is. table, isn't it? It really, yeah. really is. Even when there's a, um, a lack of uh, a moral barometer. You know, it, you, I think people don't understand how how easy it is to kind of slip under the spell of that kind of thing. Um, and I felt myself doing that. You know, there was there was something very interesting about it. And I had a litigator there who kind of took me under his wing. His name was Skip Miller, and he was trying mm-hmm. a lot of high profile cases. And he he believed in me, and I showed up for him. And it's just interesting that his name was Skip too. Like I went from one hardcore Skip my coach at Stanford to this really hardcore, <laughs> you know, uh, take no prisoners litigator named Skip. Right. Uh, you know, another weird mystical spiritual poetry there, I suppose. Um, and there was an aspect, although I was still practicing law, it was different from San Francisco because mm-hmm. of that, like kind of, um, LA veneer to it, I suppose. But ultimately, you know, I still knew this was not right for me. And I remember, I would call you or I'd go down to the Paramount lot and visit you. Mm-hmm. And it just looked like what you were doing was so much fun, <laughs> what I was doing. I was thinking, how do I get out of this? But I'm so invested in this career path at this right. point. I couldn't see a way out. Right. Well, I mean, and the drinking persisted. Right. And, and, and I mean, you, you began, I mean. Yeah. It gets dark quick. Yeah. So it's one thing to live in Ithaca and, you know, drink a little bit too much. It's another thing to try to do that in San Francisco, um, a more urban environment, of course. 
it is another thing entirely to try to play that game in Los Angeles. So very shortly after I moved to LA, I started to get in trouble. Like, you know, I would drive drunk all the time, all the time. I would do it in San Francisco and then I wouldn't remember where I parked my car and I Dang. would have to spend an hour walking around the neighborhood trying to find it. You know, stuff like that that's yeah. really embarrassing and humiliating. But when you move to LA, you can't just take side streets home and from right. the bar at night and think you're going to make it. You will get pulled over very shortly. Yeah. And when you get pulled over by the LAPD, I mean, now we're in 2020. This is 1996 at the time. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they will treat you like you have a shotgun under your seat and that you're high on crack and that you've got you know cash in the trunk or whatever mm-hmm. or, a, or a pound of heroin. They assume. They have to course. assume that. Yeah. And they treat you accordingly. Yeah. And so uh, I got a good dose of that pretty quickly after moving here. I was at a bar drinking on Melrose, uh, left at like 2.30 in the morning or whatever. I'm driving on Melrose and, and, and uh, I rear-ended a woman at the intersection of Crescent Heights, uh, an elderly woman. Turns out I ended up injuring her back. Police arrive on the scene, handcuff me, throw me in jail. Right. I blew a point a, a point two nine, which is an insane yeah. BAC. Yeah. I called my buddy, Adam Glick, who was one of my buddies from New York City. I shared an office with him at Skadden when we worked in New York City, and he was at Warner Brothers at the time in their legal affairs department. He came over in the middle of the night and, and bailed me out. Um, and that was my first interaction with the law mm-hmm. formally. Right. Well, on um, the wrong end of the law. The wrong end of the law, of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, and I think I wrote, you know, I wrote it off like everyone gets a DUI. What's the big deal? Wow. You know, like, wow. okay, I got a DUI. It was scary, but like lots of people get a DUI. I wasn't about to quit drinking. You know, that wasn't enough for me. Yeah. Two months later, did the exact same thing. Left the Christmas party of my law firm, Dude. and I was driving the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills, Yeah, and I got pulled over. I blew a .27 this time. The arresting officer uh, takes my wallet, finds my business card in my wallet, realizes that he knows my yeah. boss, Skip, right. because Skip represented the Beverly Hills Police Department and mm-hmm. the LAPD in a bunch of excessive force cases. Gives Skip a call, tells him he picked me up. I spend the night in jail in Beverly Hills. I mean, jail, I mean, the Beverly Hills jail. It's not like I went downtown or anything like that. Right. Um, but I was overnight. Uh, I was held overnight. Monday morning, Skip calls me into his office and says, I got an interesting call over the weekend. He knew all about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, man, you know, you're a smart guy. I don't want to be involved in your personal life, but you got a problem. The problem's big and you got to deal with it because I was in the middle of preparing for a trial with him at the time. And he's like, Mm -hmm. I need to be able to depend on you. Can I depend on you? I'm not sure I can right Right. now. He gave me a business card for a criminal defense lawyer. He's like, I want you to call this guy. He's expecting your call. Of course, it was like crazy expensive. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, top, top dude in LA. Um, and I went and saw him and that guy, you know, really was the first person to give me a hard dose of reality. He's like, look, man, you're an alcoholic and you're a criminal. I was like, I can't go to jail. He's like, you're going to go to jail. Of course you're going to go to jail. You got two DUIs. Who do you think you are? I'm not a, I'm not a miracle worker. Right. Wow. He goes, you're, you know, it was, it was that thing, that entitlement, like, even though I'm fucking up, like bad things don't happen to me. And he was the first person to just 
put matters to rights and say, look, man, you know, you're in a world of shit right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to help you as best as I can, but there's only so much I'm going to be able to do. And that was terrifying. Yeah. So it's got to be absolutely harrowing, super scary. And that was when I realized like, not only should I check out AA, but I'm going to have to go anyway and get this court card signed so that when I do have my court date, like I can show him that I've made an effort here. Um, and I remember going back to my office in Century City and like closing the door and like dialing information and asking for the number for Alcoholics Anonymous is like my hand shaking. Wow. Like, and like this operator is going to know that I need to go to an A meeting. You know? <laughs> 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 and it turned out there was one like right across the street every day at noon. And mm-hmm. I started going to that and I started going to some other ones. But I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I really wasn't interested in changing that much. I was interested in getting people off my back and convincing myself that I was fine and didn't really need to make that many changes in my life. Well, ultimately, if I remember correctly, fate intervened. Yeah. Third mystical spiritual equation of this story <laughs> is that in preparation for um, my case— my lawyer was trying to figure out how he could prevent the Beverly Hills court from finding out about the other, the first DUI that mm-hmm. had happened in the West LA jurisdiction. So they were in different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Generally, they're going to find out. And he was like, I wonder if there's, you know, it's like, it would be great if we could make sure that they don't know about each other, but you know, they're going to. Um, but miracle beyond miracle, um, the West LA police department or courthouse lost my file. They lost my docket and I was never uh, prosecuted or charged for that first DUI. It literally vanished into thin air without any explanation. And my lawyer was like, you don't understand. Like that never happens. It's like, I've never seen this happen. Mm -hmm. I've tried so many of these cases. I've never seen that happen before. So what was going to be a prosecution for two DUIs, which would inevitably lead to jail time for sure, 100%, um, now just became pleading out a DUI in the Beverly Hills Courthouse. So I was able to avoid jail time and, you know, uh, was, was, you know, got probation and, and essentially like, you know, a very gentle nudge. And that was it. Dang. So- I dodged a massive bullet, um, but it was enough to shock me into a sense of reality of what I'd reaped in my life. Um, so like I said, I started attending AA, but I, I couldn't wrap my head around what this work involved. Now, now remind me, you were engaged at this point. Right. So that's right? a whole I mean, this, other two-hour backstory. No, and we don't, we don't need yeah. to because that was I was yeah. a little bit of witness to that. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that you were engaged to a woman who the plan was she was living in Northern California. And the yes. plan was that she would come down to move mm-hmm. with you. Right. Um, it didn't. It didn't go that way. Yeah. There was still a wedding. Uh, I was there. Yeah, you were there. And everybody that I cared about bore witness to this ceremony that um, crescendoed on our honeymoon where I ended up sending her home and I've never seen her since. It's a long story to really understand the nuance of how this happened. But essentially she 
you know, I moved to LA. We were engaged. The plan was she was going to move down, but that distance drew us apart. I was descending deeper into alcoholism, and she didn't want to get married to me anymore. Uh, but she, she lacked the ability to tell me that, and mm. I think she was pushing me away in the hopes that I would make that decision for her. Yeah, but I was such a people pleaser and an accommodator that I just kept trying to make it right yeah. and make it right and make it right. And so I manifested this experience that she didn't want to have, and I was doing it out of sheer will. And it all just kind of blew up um, on the honeymoon, you know, prefaced by her saying the day before the wedding, like, let's not sign the marriage yeah. certificate. And then pulling this ruse with this judge, which is a whole other crazy story. Oh you know that story, right? Um I, I I don't, but it's a whole. It's a whole like it's a crazy thing, you know. And you know, ultimately, like we were never f formally married. Like I, right. she was. I'm glad that that marriage certificate was never signed. But it was a very strange and and disorienting experience that was unbelievably painful for me. Um, returning from a honeymoon alone, realizing that right. this wedding that all these people that everybody I cared about in my life had borne witness to was yeah. not to be. Yeah. I was so ashamed. We were we were all very confused of what was so going on. So ashamed and afraid, and I couldn't face it. I couldn't confront it. I was terrified, and I was paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And it was so painful that despite the fact that I'd been sober for about six months leading up to that, I started drinking again, and I couldn't stop. And and I, I almost needed it to survive. Like, the pain was so right. extreme that... My only coping mechanism was to numb it out with alcohol until that got so played out and I was so alone and, and my family. Had yeah, you alienated your family. Oh, they, so, yeah, they were right. like, we're done. You know, we know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. We can't participate in this anymore. It was only, you know, a matter of short time before I was going to get fired from my job. And I was just alone in this apartment sleeping on the floor. Mm. Uh, you know, there, was, there was no furniture. It was like a mattress on the yeah. floor. This, and, and you, you, were, really, you were all of a, probably a couple miles away from me. And yeah. this was a period that you drifted away. And, and Yeah, because when you you're in there. that state, when you're in that state, you, you isolate. Oh. You know, you just, you don't, you're not going to reach out for help. And you're, yeah. you don't want your friends to know what you're doing. All you want to do is be alone with your booze. You want to be left alone. People talk about hitting the bottom, bottom. Yeah. Out. I mean, was this it? I think, um, yeah. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think that wedding experience was really, was like the nadir, mm -hmm. you know, of my life. It was, a, it was my emotional bottom, but the drinking bottom had to come later because of the emotional pain of that wedding experience. But I did reach that, that, that moment, that moment of clarity. And, you know, those moments are a gift because those are what catalyze the willingness to make change. You know, pain is a great lever. It's a great mm -hmm. motivator. And I was in enough pain to let go of any idea I had about how I was supposed to live mm -hmm. and accept help, receive help. Which is um, what you did with. Which is what I did. So yeah, I just, yeah. I, I agreed that I would go to a treatment center and ended up... Uh, you agreed with your... So what happened was, by way of backstory, like, although my parents said, we're done with you, yeah. um, prior to that kind of announcement, they had found uh, a shrink, like an addiction specialist psychiatrist in mm -hmm. LA that I agreed to go see, 
who I would go in and try to placate. Um, and he was very clear with me, like, you need to go to treatment. You're never going to yeah. figure this out yourself. Yeah. Like, you need to get out of L.A. and get away from here. And I was so resistant to that yeah. that I kept making deals with him. Hmm. And finally, I said, if I relapse one more time, I'll go. And I did. Mm-hmm. And because I thought I was such a stand-up guy and such a man of my word, <laughs> after I relapsed in my complete dirtbag state, I was like, I'm a man of my word. And I told you I would go. If right. I relapsed, and I did, so I will go. You know, thinking I'm such a, you know, like some weird pride, I guess. But um, he's the he's the one who's like, here's the place. I got a bed set up for you. And I just booked a flight and, and, and went up there thinking um, it was in rural Oregon, like an hour outside of Portland, mm-hmm. kind of in farmland outside Portland. And I just thought, I'm going to do this mainly to get people off my back and really? like clear the cobwebs out. But mm-hmm. I got to get back to my job. Like, right. I don't want to lose my job. So I, there's no way I can be here more than a couple of weeks. Well, it was a lot longer than that, right? I ended up staying 100 days. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you got out of rehab mm-hmm. with a different perspective? 100%. Yeah. Completely different perspective. I very gingerly left that treatment center pretty scared of the outside world. Like I'd Mm -hmm. lived in a hermetically sealed environment for Mm -hmm. quite a long time and had learned some tools for how to live. But that's very different than being unleashed on the metropolis of (laughs) the city of angels, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I was very – look, you know, listen. When I was in that treatment center, you know – it's sort of like gauche, like, oh, you go to treatment. Like, you get in trouble, you go to treatment. Mm-hmm. Like, all the celebrities go to treatment. But, you know, it was not a romantic experience. You know, I was like, this is not what I had in mind for my life. Like, how did my life end up in this place? It's essentially a mental institution. Mm. You know, I'm the guy, I was the guy who got that diploma from Harvard saying I could go to Harvard. And right. like, now here I'm here? What the fuck, man? Yeah. You know, yeah. and. When the denial broke and I was able to really objectively like grok like the state of my life, I took the the rehabilitation process very seriously mm-hmm. and I really gave myself over to it. And if they said do this, I would do it just like just like Skip Kenny saying do this yeah, set. Right. Um, and I started to feel better and my life started to get better. So when I came down to LA, I was like, surprise my number one priority. Full stop. And I immediately immersed myself in the 12-step community Mm -hmm. around the city. I got commitments at meetings. I was living um, like in Santa Monica, Venice, but I would go to this meeting every morning at 7.30 in West Hollywood and Mm -hmm. had the coffee commitment. So I'd have to wake up at 5.30, just like I was going to mornings from practice. Right, right. Um, And I started to meet new people. Like I was like, you know, other than people like yourself, I was also, you know, I had a lot of like lower companions in my life that I had to clear out. You know what I mean? Mm. I like I, I was like I need a new peer group of people who are on the sober tip. Oh. And you know, I just lived in meetings. I was going to two a day and um, started to slowly, you know, rebuild my life piece by yeah. piece. But I still had to go back to that law firm, and I knew like this is not the path for me. Yeah. But they supported me when I went into Skip's office and said I got to go to treatment. He was like, go for it. Like yeah. he was very supportive. Um, and I felt that the right thing to do was to go back and work there at least as long as I was gone. And I ended mm-hmm. up working there for, I think, almost a full full year after I got out of treatment. But really, my job was sobriety Yeah. at that time. 
And I was able to build an unbelievable foundation of sobriety. And the people that I met in that first year are still some of my best friends wow. to this day. Well, you also had something very fortunate happen in that you met Julie during that mm-hmm. time too, correct? Your, who would become your wife. Yeah. I met her uh, right around the one-year sober mark. Mm-hmm. When I got out of treatment, it was impressed upon me that uh, I avoid dating for at least a year. <laughs> so, so many of my issues and my drinking habits were in, intertwined with like my relationships with the opposite sex, wow. and I really had to disentangle that knot um, and 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 work through all of my you know fears and insecurities around dating and women. Yeah. And I had to process what happened with that wedding and all of that. And they were like, "You're just not in a state to date anybody right now." Yeah. And so I, I was celibate for a year, and that was an incredibly empowering experience. And I learned a lot about myself. And I met Julie right at the tail end of that year um, in a yoga class. And there was something, you know, when I saw, I was like, I just knew, like, I'm supposed to be with this woman. It was a very weird, intangible thing. And yeah, but it's an important it. thing. And yeah. I mean, and, and in I, hindsight, it's easy to say that, you know, there was something that was telling you. Mm hmm. You need to be I was being pulled in her yeah. direction for right. sure. And I thought, you know, my next girlfriend is going to be a little bit younger than me. She's not going to have, you know, any of the kind of issues that I have. Like, it's going to be simple. I was just <laughs> looking for something really, like, easy. Yeah. And I meet Julie, who's coming out of a divorce and has two sons from a prior marriage. And it's all very complicated. <laughs> but the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, and yeah. she's really the only person I dated in sobriety. And we got married and we've been together ever since 1999. Dang. Well, yeah. so you, you stayed sober for a long time. But there was other unhealthy habits yeah. that you would indulge yourself in because of the just I would assume was it because of the daunting nature of staying sober? Drugs and alcohol aren't the problem. Like they're the cure. You take those away, you remove that coping mm. mechanism mm. from the drug addict or the alcoholic, and they're a raw nerve without any tools or skills for how to process their emotions. And that is the process of recovery, learning how to deal with all of that in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And it's a long and nonlinear process. So in my case, I had eradicated the drugs and alcohol, but um, I threw myself into work. Even though I hated my job, I was like, I needed an anchor, and mm-hmm. I became a workaholic. And it's only in retrospect that I can look back and realize how I can use anything to medicate myself, anything. I can use this podcast to medicate my emotional state, to run away from the feelings or the emotions that I want to avoid. And food works great for that. Mm. You know, when you're feeling disassociated or not so good, you know, why do people eat ice cream or cheeseburgers? It's like there's a calming, you know, kind of effect that happens Mm. with that. I can't do drugs. Well, I guess at least I can, let me just eat something that tastes good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, can I, does everything have to go? You know, so (laughs) it was kind of like that. And I, you know, I overindulged in that regard. And when you're young, like, look, when you're swimming, you know, like, we just, you just, you yeah, want. you develop these habits around food that are very unhealthy because it's just about packing as many calories as you can into your body. Right. And we carry those habits. Yeah. And then you quit swimming, yeah. but you still have that habit. I know. Unfortunately, you, know? you got to stop it. Yeah, right. And it's difficult. So it was a little bit of that as well. Well, um, I mean, there's so many aspects of that, that there was kind of a divine intervention that led you down a path. You, you, you had kind of an epiphany because of 
a health scare. Yeah. So I was inching up on 40 shortly before my 40th birthday. And I, I had like a very crystallized moment where I'd been working late. I came, I hit the, I hit the drive through on the way home, mm-hmm. you know, a couple, mm-hmm. couple, uh, ultimate cheeseburgers at Jack in the box, <laughs> you know, my car smelled like a fast food outlet. Um, got home, everybody's asleep and, you know, was making my way up the stairs to go to bed and, you know, I had to, I had to stop. Like I couldn't walk up the full flight without, I was super winded, you know, and a little tightness in my chest and kind of a little sweat, you know, thinking, wow, like, I don't know about you, John, but even though so many years had passed since I'd been a swimmer at Stanford, I still identified so thoroughly with that version of myself. Well, you can't fathom something that, like not being able to go up the yeah, stairs. Even when I would look in the mirror, I would still see that fit swimmer, even yeah. though I was 50 pounds overweight right. and it didn't look anything like that. Like that's a version of denial as well. And that experience of like being defeated by a, a flight of stairs, um, you know, just it was an, it just snapped another layer of denial. Like recovery is always about trying to like hmm. pull covers on all of these things. And I just realized in that moment that I was living not only unsustainably, but you know, this was just another version of my addiction getting the best of me. Mm. And I had this awareness that I could make a change, a significant change, like an awareness and a willingness to make a change and, and a perception of the preciousness of these kind of moments. Like that day that I decided to go to rehab, like changed my life completely. Right, or right. that day that, you know, I had to decide whether I was going to go to law school or like go to LA and mm-hmm. sleep on your couch. Like those decisions dictate, you know, massively what your life ends up looking like. And by virtue of grabbing onto the lifeline and going to rehab, my life had changed so wildly dramatically. I was almost 10 years sober at this point when I hit the was on the staircase. And I just had a sense that this was another one of those. I was like, this is just like that time, mm-hmm. you know? And look at that decision that I made and how much it changed me. Like, what can I do now yeah. to have another version of that? I think everybody has moments like this, mm-hmm. but if we're distracted, you know, they, they pass because, or, or we, don't, we don't appreciate them for the power that they hold, the potential right. energy that they hold. But if you can be grounded and present enough to see them when they occur, they really can transform your life wholesale. And yeah, and I, yeah. I just, for whatever reason, I was like, I'm having one of those moments. I need to do something now because if yeah. I wait, it'll just pass and I'll be back to the same old shit. So it has to be immediate. And it also has to be like hard, kind of like I had to get on a plane and go to rehab and then like sweat it out for a couple of days on a mm-hmm. hospital bed. Like I need to do some version of that for how, for my lifestyle habits right mm-hmm. now um, so that I can kind of trigger that, that sense memory um, and, and kind of reboot the operating system. And that took the form of... So I did like a juice cleanse yeah. for a week. You know, I'd never gone a day without eating food. I don't know about you, but like, <laughs> it seemed like a really hard... Now everybody's doing cleanses. And yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, back then, like 
you know, I was kind of doing yoga and Julie's into all this kind of stuff. Right. So I was like, I'll try this. This sounds hard. This sounds like going to rehab for food. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. go and detox. Uh, and it was hard. Like for a couple days, I was felt like I was weaning myself off like an opiate. It was crazy. Lethargic, sweating mm-hmm. on the couch. But by the fifth, sixth, seventh day, like I felt incredible. I couldn't believe that I could feel that good without eating food. So there was an empowerment in just the accomplishing something that was hard aspect mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. There was the rebooting of the physical operating system by like n- not putting anything shitty in right. my body for right. a week. Right, right. And then there was this appreciation for the resilience of the human body to bounce back. Like yeah. I did feel amazing. And that was, that was what kind of catalyzed me into trying to find a way to feel like that all the time. And that was, was the like, beginning of your whole uh, vegan Adventure. Yeah, I mean, it didn't happen. It was it, it took a long time before I figured all that out, but right. the search began then, you know, to like find a way of living and eating and taking care of my body so yeah. that I could capture. It's you know the unhealthy version of it is like oh you get you know like I saw Bruce Kimball do that backflip and I want to I want to <laughs> and I remember the buzz that I had and I want to feel like that all the time. Uh-huh. This was like the healthier version of that. Like wow, <laughs> I have like really good energy right now. Yeah, how can I bottle this and replicate it? So on the other hand, too, it had been, what, a couple of decades, 20 or so years since you had really meaningfully exercised. As we all know, the rich role that we all know, that that became a very important part of mm-hmm. you and, and, and finding yourself. Yeah. I mean, it didn't happen by virtue of a plan. It was kind of a natural, organic unfolding of this search for self-connection, I guess you could call it. You know, in in recovery, I'd done so much work on getting sober and then realizing, like, am I really emotionally sober? Like, am I really living in a, a life that is in alignment with my values? What are my values? What's important mm-hmm. to me? What do I enjoy doing? What gets me excited in the morning? You know, I started asking right, right. those questions of myself. But they're the right Not questions, just, right? Right, but also demanding answers. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have answers to those questions. Right. and. You know, when I had that staircase thing, like in the background was this existential crisis. It was really the collision of like a spiritual existential crisis of, of you know, this life that I didn't feel like I consciously chose for myself. Um, and the, the kind of health thing was, was, was really a mechanism for bringing the larger issue to the surface, which is like, what are you doing with your life, dude? Yeah, like, is this yeah. it? Is this what you're going to do? Just live unfulfilled in this way for the remainder of your days. And I made a decision to just start saying yes to things that I wanted to do that I'd repressed or denied. Mm. And I figured that was a way of just finding some connection with myself. And it's it wasn't fancy things. It was like, you know what? Like swimming was so imp- I love swimming. Mm-hmm. Why haven't I gone swimming in such a long time? Like I'm going to go for a swim. And I like being out in the sun. Like, I'm going to pull those running shoes out of the closet and, like, go for a jog. Right. Like, I just wanted to connect with my physical body. Like, cool. there is that sense of empowerment when, like, like when you were, we were talking earlier and you were talking about, like, that experience of what it's like when you just, when you feel so good, like, yes. when you're so fit, yes. you know? And then as you get older, you move on with your life, like, you detach from that. But I think there was a sense of wanting to recapture at least some aspect of what it's like to be in my body again. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've had a similar experience to me or whether you'd categorize it like this, but 
I find that, especially now at an older age, that exercise, it, the, the restorative qualities of exercise are perhaps the greatest benefit that mm-hmm. I get. Just even, you know, physically, of course, but emotionally yeah. as well. So do you think you were like restoring your, you know, former healthy self, your balanced outlook on life and I think I was, yeah, I was trying to, like on a surface level, I was trying to repair my physical body. That was one. But deeper was this search for meaning and also this Mm. journey to finding, like trying to connect with joy, really. Like that's what that process did for me initially. It reminded me of the, like these things that I did as a kid that just made me happy. You know, and I was like, I want to be happy. I want, right. Like, just because I'm older now doesn't mean that I can't do these things anymore. Like, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I do this because this does bring me joy. And why did I forget that? But what, yeah, and that's you know? sports should bring you joy. Yeah. It has such a potential to bring you joy and balance and, mm-hmm. and a good, a great outlook on life. But there was no competitive compunction to it at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. You know, Julie bought me a bike for my birthday to kind of honor this impulse. And I fell into riding with a group of friends on mm-hmm. weekends, but it was all like super dad stuff. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, you know, I'm going to go it's out okay and It's okay to be super it. dad. Yeah. No, I mean, but there isn't, there's, of course, you know, yeah, that's the best. But my point being that I wasn't the, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to race. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. I was doing it to try to, to try to just feel integrated. Yeah. But you said you wanted to assign meaning, meaning, which I completely understand and aspiration and aspiring to do stuff obviously gives you meaning in your life. But at one point, somehow you set your sights on a quite an extreme goal, which Mm -hmm. was to compete in the Ultraman triathlon, which is basically a double Ironman. I mean, just like seeing how hot we could get. I mean, <laughs> that's like, yeah, it's all the same thing. Yeah. How drunk can I get? How hot can I get? How many uh, sets of 200 fly can I do? Right. Like it, it, it's all the same thing. Yeah, but there there, there obviously is a, a sense of peace in there for you, or you wouldn't have done it, correct? Am I, am I well, miscategorizing this? No, no, no. I mean, you know, look, people say to me all the time, like, oh, you do these ultra endurance races. That's just another version of your alcoholism. And I go, yeah. Probably, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of, there's a lot of people in recovery that are in the ultra endurance community. Oh, okay. And when they get asked that question, they're like, no, you don't understand. This is healthy. And I was like, no, it's, you know, it can be as addictive as anything. Like mm-hmm. I have to acknowledge that. I have to be intellectually honest mm-hmm. with myself about that. There's definitely an addictive aspect to this. The difference is drugs and drinking, you know, m- turn my life upside down. Oh, the t- And this t- pursuit has made me a more fully actualized human yeah. being, as long as I do it responsibly and in balance. If I do it to such an extent that, um, you know, I'm never there for my wife and kids and yeah. I can't show up for work, right, then it's right. the same thing as drinking on a certain level. Right? right, no, that makes sense. But I think where where the where that kind of crops up is, you know, the more I was, I started swimming and running and, and riding my bike and I just was enjoying it so much and I lost 
I lost a bunch of weight pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and I, I, I was getting fit, like, really quickly. Like, I was starting to feel like myself again. Yeah. And it was more it was more of a, like, well, I'm going to double down on this. Like, I, yeah. I like this. This feels good. And with that, there's a lot of alone time. You know, when you're at swim practice, your head's underwater, but yeah. you're stopping every couple minutes and getting barked at by a coach. But mm-hmm. when you're out on your bike, as you know, hours and hours pass, and you have this strange relationship with time. Time becomes very malleable. And there's an internal um, thing that occurs that connects you in a in a kind of active meditative way with who you are, and you'll find yourself. It's like if you're driving cross country, right? And mm-hmm. you're you're like suddenly like two hours go by, and you're right. like, "Where was I? I don't even remember." I like know. it's kind of scary. And right? you've been like, completely yeah. content the whole <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit of that, and I think that quietude and that process was really healing to me mm-hmm. and helpful in in me trying to grapple with these ideas about you know who I was and what I right. wanted to do so it was kind of serving um, different uh, different roles yeah. in, in that regard but look man you know I'm also competitive and the more f- I was getting really fit and just feeling great and I thought, I wonder what I can do. I'm 40, 41, 40. Yeah. Well, first Ultraman was 42. Uh, and I'd long written off being a competitive athlete. But I felt like I had unfinished business also. Like, oh, the peak of my athletic career was a dual meet against Texas <sighs> when I was a freshman with a yeah. broken rib. Like, that's how you're going to, that's the end of that. Like, maybe I could do something here. Interesting. And the allure of ultra endurance was compelling because it didn't feel competitive in the traditional way. It felt more like a spiritual odyssey. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like it, it's, it, it, it seems, it struck me more like an ayahuasca trip than like, you know, trying to be on a podium. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it would be a vehicle for me deepening that process of, of you know, grappling with identity. Well, you're talking a lot about your inner meaning and finding yeah. the inner meaning, yeah, but you were getting yeah. a lot of outside affirmation. Yeah, it, it came pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I, I, I'm I, obviously you you assign some sort of a meaning to that that you're taking this in a direction that could possibly help people and and progress you as who you are as rich role as a person. I mean, that came much later. Oh, okay. You know, I did the first Ultraman, and, you know, I just wanted to finish, and I ended up doing better than I expected and mm-hmm. went back the next year intent on being really competitive and yeah. was leading the race on the first day, and I crashed my bike, and there's a whole drama in there. But, you know, I surprised myself, and, and you know, it just demonstrated to me the the incredible potential that I think resides within all of us when we yeah. set our, our mind on on accomplishing something that seems impossible and then we're able to breathe life into it. Um, and and you know and then I did the five Ironmans and five you know the I did five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands. Yeah I wanna I wanna definitely follow we can talk up about on that, that yeah, in yeah. a minute. So I did a couple crazy things and 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 that led to you know some media attention not just because I was a middle-aged lawyer guy like doing these hard things, but I was also doing it on a vegan diet. And at the mm-hmm. time, that was kind of a newer thing, and people were interested in how well, that could be possible. Yeah, you were on the forefront so, of that whole movement. Right. Um, and and I think the, the kind of advocacy service piece really clicked in for me um, in the wake of a blog post that I wrote 
for CNN. Like Sanjay Gupta came to my house and mm-hmm. we did this thing for CNN, which was crazy. Cause like, I was just doing this for myself. Yeah, like I yeah. couldn't believe that anybody else was interested in and this. Sanjay you know, Gupta like, of all people I know, too. He's like right? the coolest guy on the news. But his producer called me and he's like, Sanjay loves your blog. And I was like, <laughs> Sanjay Gupta reads my blog. Like what universe am I living in? Right, like, this right. is crazy. Right. Um, he came and did a story and then and then they were like, Hey, do you wanna write like why don't you write a little thing about your story for for the website? Which I did. Um, didn't think much of it, but it sudden suddenly started getting tons of tons of um, traffic. So they yeah. put it on the homepage of CNN.com and it blew up and it was like the number one most emailed store shared story or whatever, something wow. like that. Wow. So then I suddenly got hundreds and hundreds of emails in like a forty eight hour period from wow. people all over the world who were like you know, that story inspired me. And then here's my version of that, or here's what I'm going through right now in incredibly uh, vivid and vulnerable detail. And I just, I'd never experienced anything like that. Like what would compel somebody to email me this really private saga of, of, of struggle and toil and pain. And it was so impactful. Like I was so touched by that. I was really emotional by it. And I remember being in the car with Julie and I was like reading these on the, on my phone. I was like, another one had come in and I start crying. And I was like, I can't, you know, I was like, this has to mean something. Like how can, how can I take this energy and translate it in a way that can be, um, you know, of service to other people in some Mm -hmm. way. And also, some way of supporting, you know, us, our family. Like, how can I, how can I, how can I do that? Like, I'm not supposed to be a lawyer. Clearly, you know, the universe is telling me that I need to do something else. And yeah. That be, that began the process of trying to figure out, like, you know, how to achieve that. And that was, you know, that took 15 years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of trying to figure out. But that's how it began. Wow. So um, you mentioned the Epic Five Challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. Describe describe what that is. So this was the brainchild of my friend Jason Lester, who I had met um, at the Ultraman in 2008 and then had spent tr- time living with and training with for the 2009 Ultraman. And mm-hmm. Jason's a very special person. He is... Uh, an athlete who lacks the functional use of his right arm. Mm-hmm. It's not amputated, it's there, but he keeps it wrapped and it, it's just limp, right? Mm-hmm. And irrespective of that, he competes in all of these crazy ultra-endurance challenges um, and doesn't really want to be classified as a, as a disabled or para, you know, Paralympic-type mm-hmm. athlete. Right. He just wants to do it with everyone else. Um, incredibly inspirational, and I've... I've I don't know that I've ever met anyone else with such fortitude. Like, you know, it's hard enough to do the 6.2 mile swim in the Ultraman yeah. as a person with all your Please. limbs. Can you imagine doing that with one arm? No, forget it. And then getting on your bike and riding 90 miles and then Again, 170 miles the next day and then running 52 miles. Like, it's unbelievable yeah. what this guy's done. So he had this idea to do this challenge that he was calling the Epic Five, where you did an Ironman on each of the five Hawaiian islands and do it in five oh, days. come on, Rich. And he wow. told me that he was going to do it. He First time he explained it to me, I was like, that sounds awesome. I'll support you. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> from the nosebleed seats, you yeah, know, how yeah. can I help? And then he ultimately, um, you know, asked me to do it with him, to join him with it. And I just thought, like, I, 
I got to do this. And the fact that no one had ever tried right. it before or done right. it, I was like, it's kind of the Everest of triathlons. I, I have to do this. Like I got to, you know, so. You were going to give up at one point. What was it? On the fourth night, you mm-hmm. once again experienced uh, that bottomed out where you didn't know whether or yeah. not you were going to continue. Sleep deprivation was really inching up on me. And on day four, it really like caught up with me. And I remember being on the bike. It was dark out. We're trying to finish the ride. Um, and I was so miserable. I had, I had, um, I had sores on the undercarriage. I could, I couldn't really sit on my saddle. Yeah. I was so dehydrated and depleted. <laughs> I was like starting to cry, like <laughs> while I was riding my bike. <laughs> you know, yep. like a baby. You were done. And I, on my little Garmin, on my my little bike computer, like we, I think we had like three or four more miles to go, and that was the only thing keeping me going to finish this ride before the marathon. And and the guy who was crewing us that day drove up next to us and looked out the window, and he's like, he's like, actually, this is messed up. Like we have like fifteen more miles to go to oh, do it no. right or whatever. And that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, and I yeah. just like lost it. I was like, I, I'm not gonna be able to do this, and suffered through you know that final fifteen miles or whatever it was of the bike. And when that was done, um, I just dropped my bike and I was like, I'm there's no run a marathon. Like I can't even stand up right now. We were in this little parking lot at Kihei beach where we had started that morning with the swim. And I remember sitting on the bumper of this SUV and, you know, Jason, he's so stoic. Like he would, he just never shows weakness, but I could tell like we were fracturing big time and, you know, he didn't have much more in the tank that I did. And right at that moment, out from the beach, this woman uh, appears and she starts walking towards us. And I, I'll never forget, like she stood underneath like the lamp post. There was like a parking lot yeah. lamp, you yeah. know, yeah. like glowing down on her. And she's got a brown paper bag. Uh, clear, I was like, clearly, you know, the local drunk or whatever. And she's scanning the group of people. And then she locks eyes with me for some reason. She's staring at me, and she walks right up to me and 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 looks down at me, and she goes, "Hey, man, do you want to party?" <laughs> I was like, "I was like, do I want to party? No, I don't want to party." Like she doesn't know what we're doing, but right when you're that tired, imagine yourself after like the hardest set you've ever done. Yeah. Like any external stimuli is overwhelming. Yeah, right, and you're just like, get away from me. Like yeah. I can't deal with this. I just no, I don't want to party, like brushed her off. I can't believe this drunk woman. And she was like, and like kind of saunters off into the, into the darkness and, and she was gone. And, and I think about her a lot. Like this is another like crazy God shot, you know, like why did that happen? Why did she look at me? Why did she ask me that question? And I choose to interpret that experience as, you know, another like mystical, magical lesson, you know, because you know, there's you know, I could have I could there's so many times that I could have 
gone awry. Like had I not made a few decisions at the right time and been lucky that, that I would have just, you know, I, I, I was headed in that direction. You know, it's like I identify with that woman and how much pain she probably was in, you know, that, that in so many ways really was myself reflected back to me. And, and I get that, you know, that, 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 you know, I choose to believe that it wasn't just some random encounter with a drunk woman, but that this person was delivered to me to remind me of, of what my life could have been like and how much I needed to appreciate like how far I had come and, and, and what was occurring in this moment. Like it, it brought me back to that, the, the present moment. Um, and when I think about it like that, it's, you know, it's profound and maybe it's silly. I don't know. Or maybe I've just made it all up. No, it's not too. You know, it's it's like, um, I mean, I was so fucked up for so long, and the fact that I was able to kind of turn things around with the help of a lot of people and be in that situation that I was in. You know, it just, it just, it just, it really. Um, it landed on me and as tired as I was, you know, somehow I found the wherewithal to like get up off that bumper and start walking Mm -hmm. with no small, you know, no small part due to Jason, you know, Jason's like, come on, we're going, Right. you know, like I, had he not been there, I would have caved myself, I'm sure. Um, and just put one foot in front of the other you know, and started walking through the night. And we walked for a while. Yeah, right. And we started to jog, and that jog turned into a run, and then we would jog again, and then we would walk. And I was grouchy, man. I was grouchy. (laughs) Know the feeling. Um, But by the time uh, the sun started to come up, we'd we'd completed that marathon. That's crazy. I just can't, you know, like looking back on it now, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been 10 years. I still don't know how we did it. Um, you know, I have a I have a, a, a small confession, um, and and that is that when your book came out in in 2012, you you gave me a copy and mm-hmm. you signed it. Very nice, a very nice gesture for, to send me to send me that book, and and I did I did skim it, mm-hmm. and of course, I as any good narcissist would do, I found out figured out the parts that I was. In. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know you know Rich you know we it's been it's been a, a few years since we really had have been in touch like mm-hmm. this the it's been the cycle of our our relationship yeah. over thirty five years and and I had I had a, an epiphany of sorts and and that is that I, it was always a mystery why you would drift into my life and then drift out to my life and out of my life and the book provided to me and I really wish I would have read it in 2012 but i read it this in this past week Mm. and that is that it gave me an empathy for you and what you've been through that didn't exist even though i would always consider myself caring for you and wanting the best for you perhaps it gave a new meaning of empathy being able to walk in somebody else's shoes by reading 
in those times when you would be apart and you would disappear what you were actually going through. And I, I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, um, I'm saddened that I didn't make that big effort that I should have made in 2012 when that book first came out. Well, let me disabuse you of any of that uh, <laughs> emotion. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but, uh, there's nothing there's nothing you could have there's nothing you know you could have done and and you know I still you know I still have so many amends to make and I have growth to endure and I still battle with like you know my desire to isolate and cut myself off from other people and I you know I'm to blame in you know the 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 you know the kind of chapters of our relationship where I would disappear like there's I've been sober throughout a lot of those where mm-hmm. it's still like I'm focused on my thing and I have my own narcissism or my own like I got to take you know I can't I don't have time for friends and mm-hmm. I have a a character defect of like crowding out like friends from my life and I and I rationalize it as like I got to focus or whatever meanwhile life is passing me by I'm very aware of that and and every time I see you, if I have a confession for you, it's like when I see you, I'm reminded of of that tendency in myself that mm. keeps me at arm's length from the people that I care about most. And that's like a thing that, you know, that's like one of my many character flaws that I'm always trying to get better at. Well, we all have, yeah. we all have character flaws. And I think mm. not knowing what your character flaws is, is a, probably the biggest character flaw of them all. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least we're all yeah. as we get older hopefully we and then when you're aware of them and don't do anything about them then well, you just torture yourself well, okay forever. maybe that's a bigger yeah. character <laughs> flaw um you know and and i just finally i'd like to to leave off just my incredible thanks for for taking part in my podcast um i i must admit also it's it's quite intimidating with all of uh-huh. the with all of the experience that you have um and and it, it's humbling, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate both your taking part and spending time with me, but also being willing to mentor and, and help me through this process. Yeah, so it's, it's my pleasure and my honor, John. And I can tell you straight up, I get interviewed a lot on a lot of people's podcasts, and we went places I've never gone before and, um, and talked about things in a, in a way that is new and unique and that doesn't happen very often. So I think that you have a quite a knack for this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. You I are a storyteller it. after all. So. I, I, I appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, and, and as we always say, when we part ways, we need to not, it needs to not be so long next time. hundred percent, man. Thank you. All right. We'll all go right. for a swim real soon. Love you, John. Love you too, Rich. Famed American mythologist Joseph Campbell said it like this, We must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. Campbell teaches us that hidden hands are guiding us along the path that we are meant to take. And during his wildly popular PBS interview with Paul Moyers, Campbell summed it up like this, Follow your bliss and don't be afraid, and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be. If you would like to hear more from Rich, his new book is called Voicing Change, Inspiration and Timeless Wisdom from the Rich Roll Podcast. 
and you can pick it up on his website at richroll.com. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining me today for this inspiring, raw, and rather intense interview with Rich. I hope you liked this episode of Sports Life Balance, and if you did, I'd love you to take a moment to give us your five-star review. Have a great week, everyone.